0: Hello and welcome to Thoughts in the Hoops. It's another Friday, which means it's another time to sit down and talk about Celtic. Uh, This one's a little bit different from the normal live streams. You'll have seen I've done interviews with other fans in the past, Alan Morrison and Jared Hill from Celtic Down Under. Um, So if you haven't seen those, obviously go back and watch them. But I've got another guest on the channel who I'm very happy to have with me. It is Liam Carrigan. Uh, Liam, how are you doing?
1: Good, good, thanks. Um, It's... uh... (laughs) it's uh, half past eight at night here at time of recording it's a bit later in the day than it is where you are but uh aye all good all good
0: (laughs) all good um no thanks very much for coming on the channel um i'm really keen to use the platform that i'm trying to build um as a bit of an opportunity to talk to other celtic supporters about their experience but particularly folk like yourself and and like Jared before, and hopefully other people in future, about what it's like to support Celtic from outside of that West of Scotland, Glasgow bubble, which we've had a little bit of a chance to talk an awful lot about um, on on other platforms. I've been on Celtic Down Under with you, and we've been on Axom at the same time as well. Um, And so, but I thought this might be a a good chance for us to do a little bit more of a deep dive into into what it's like to be, you know, in your case, pretty much halfway around the world um, and supporting Celtic. But before we do that, I just wanted to like start at the very beginning, because as Julie Andrew says, it's a very good place to start. Um, <laughs> Your your childhood and your Celtic supporting childhood, what was your kind of, again, I don't like to do this and, and give away people's age, but what was your kind of era, I would say, in terms of your first childhood heroes for Celtic and, and, and what are your memories of those?
1: No, well, I mean, first of all, you know, people are going <laughs> to. I've got a bit of an online presence. People could do a bit of googling; they'll find out I'm 40. I, I, you know, That is how old I am. I don't, I don't mind hiding for that. But um, the, um, the thing is that I, I was actually quite late into football. Um, I spent from from when I was one year old until I was about seven years old. I actually lived down in Torquay in the southwest of England, and football is not as big of a deal down there as it is in Glasgow, and. Um, as a result, mm. I didn't really get into football until we moved back to Scotland in 1990 when I was when I was seven and uh, so my first experience at Celtic was one year before that when I was uh, when I was six years old we went we were up in Scotland visiting family and we went to Celtic Park and my dad arranged a tour for us now just me just me and my dad and uh, our tour guide for the day was Stevie Chalmers. Now, being a wee boy at the time, I didn't know who oh, Stevie well. Chalmers was. Um, I was just, who's a, there's this nice man that knows a lot about Celtic, has given us a tour. And it was uh, it was lovely. Um, he really painted a beautiful picture of what Celtic are all about. And uh, that was me. I was hooked. Um, also had my photo took with the Scottish Cup that day and then dropped it two seconds later. That was fun. Um, but yeah, it was great it was great um it was just a really positive first experience at celtic and then it was another 3 or 4 years later before i finally got to my first game which was uh early 1992 and that was uh, a mid-season friendly against new zealand which was a, <laughs> a bizarre one but we uh, went 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 along to that and then uh, i didn't actually get a season ticket until i was uh, until after i left school when i was uh, when i was 16 uh, aye. When I, was six, when I was 16, came up for 17, it was the, uh, the Martin O'Neill season, his first season was the season I got my season ticket, so uh had some good good memories that year, but um, I was able to see a few different Celtic games periodically leading up to that, but that was my, yeah, from 1991 onwards I was right into football, and the the 1992 Euro Championship really sticks out for me because that was the first big football tournament I remember watching um like watching every game looking up about what the teams were all about and uh you know it was really and the whole fairy tale with denmark who weren't weren't even supposed to be there ended up winning the thing it was it was great and from then on i've been really into international football as well um which funnily enough led to uh you know there was a world cup in japan in 2002 and i thought that looks like a nice place and four years later i moved there so <laughs> there you go
0: well <laughs> oh. What a what a, what a story. You covered an awful lot there. Let's go back to to the season ticket and to Martin O'Neill and, and that era. I mean hmm. you're you're about ages with me, so like that was kinda my teenage years as well, was encompassed by basically I was ten years old when Henry Larson signed for Celtic and I was seventeen when he left. So like that hmm. kinda covered I would say probably that time in your life when you're the most fanatical about your football club. I say that, maybe we're a bit more fanatical now doing stuff like this, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I I have fond memories of that era as well. Um, do you think, I guess I'm maybe putting you on the spot here, but, do you think, um, do you think that team... Uh, in terms of comparing to teams that have come afterwards, there's a lot of younger people going to watch this and think, you know, nobody can beat the Brendan Rodgers Invincibles or nobody can beat Angie's team of last season. How do you think mm. that team that was around in your formative years kind of stacks up um, in comparison to the more modern ones that you've seen since?
1: That 2000-2001 that team for me is still the best Celtic team I've I've watched. Um, as in watching live, obviously I'm not old enough to have seen the Lisbon Lions in their heyday whatever, but that was, that was the best team for me. Um, Henrik Larson is the greatest footballer Scottish football's ever had. Um, there was, you know, there was tremendous talent through that whole team. You know, you had Luba Maravchik towards the end of his career there, was still there. Um, you know, you had in the midfield, you had guys like, uh. Guys like Alan Thompson, who was phenomenal with the, his free kicks, were unbelievable. Even <laughs> I would say probably up there with uh, with the likes of Nakamura in terms of his long range shooting ability. um Then you had Chris Sutton, who <laughs> was every every bit as good at, at scalping Rangers on the park as he is now off the park. So that was <laughs> that was um <laughs> that was good. And uh yeah, it was just a great team from back to front. Um, And I really, really enjoyed those, those times because we were, we were very, very dominant then, but we were dominant against what was at the time, still a very strong Rangers team. Um, so I, I do think that, you know, it's not, I'm not going to, you know, in in a sense, stick up for Rangers here, but what I would say is it was a lot harder to win the league then than it is now, um, in terms of the quality Mm. required to beat them, um. And that yeah. is something that I think we all need to think about when we compare modern day players to um, the players of that era. Is that it was a much more challenging time, and both Celtic and Rangers were were doing a bit more damage in Europe back then as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, well, let's say. Let's, uh... Let's just clarify. We are talking about two different clubs here, as well.
1: Ah, uh, yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, um, that Rangers were doing well in Europe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aye.
0: <laughs> yeah, the Rangers are slightly different.
1: Aye.
0: Um But no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I think, um, I think that's where you can sometimes get a little bit of um. False representation when you talk about trophy halls and stuff like that, because some of the modern day Celtic players. Maybe have larger trophy halls than, than the ones that have gone in the past. But say, for example, the the ninety five Scottish Cup win, um, or mm. or sorry, not the Scottish Cup one, I always get mixed up with that one. But the the trophies that we won in the nineties. Let's put it that way. I think we're, in a lot of ways, harder earned than the the modern ones. That's another hot take. I'll probably get taken down for. But it's like, it, it, I can see, I can see why from both sides. There's sort of an element of. Um you know a mismatch between the 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 teams of of the past and now, because I think, like you say, you were dealing with essentially a Rangers team who were much stronger and had world class players, but we all know why that was the case mm. um but um but it was just interesting to to get your thoughts on that
1: i was just i was just gonna say one one more thing on that point is that um you know, I, I, I remember growing up at the time, I had friends who were, you know, Partick Thistle fans, Man United fans, whatever. But they had an interest in what was going on in Scotland, obviously. And one of them said to me something that I thought was quite appropriate. He said, you know, Celtic were completely dominant in the late 60s and early 70s, winning the European Cup, winning nine league titles, whatever. He said it's kind of appropriate from a neutral sense that it essentially ended in a draw that Rangers of the 90s ended up getting nine, and we got nine in the 70s. And, you know, because we were both as dominant in, in our respective time periods as each other. And I think that's quite a quite an interesting take from a neutral. He said, you know, it's just the two of them ended up on a draw, essentially, you both got your nine, and that was that was it. And then, of course, more recently, we, we stopped on nine as well. No one seems able to get that 10 over the line. Um, so it's kind of a, it's an interesting bit of symmetry there, you know
0: yeah it is and it's one of these things but I'm sure it will happen one day but um, and, and when it does oh my goodness the 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 bragging rights will be forever in the corner of whoever achieves it I know who's more likely to achieve it but we' we'll, we'll not mm. go into that <laughs> um, talking going back to talking a little bit more about um your your move to Japan and, and and all that kind of thing you said at the beginning of the podcast that the that the World Cup in Japan in 2002. Um, that was obviously co-hosted by Japan and South Korea. It gave you a glimpse into what a, a culture and an idea of a place that you thought might be interesting to to go and live. Was it just a when you when you moved out there? Was it just an exploratory thing, or did you go for a job, or what? What was that kind of thing that that kind of took you out there?
1: It was. Um, I mean, there was a number of factors. I've always been kind of interested in you know uh martial arts and that kind of thing i i did um when i was in high mm-hmm. school i did taekwondo then when i went to university i did kendo which is like japanese fencing and um through that actually through the kendo while i was a university student i was invited over to japan for uh like a training camp essentially like my my sensei's mm-hmm. sensei um was living in in northern japan at the time so we went and trained with him uh, spent a week up in the north, spent a week in Tokyo, and I just I thought, this place is amazing, I want to spend more time here. So a year later, when I graduated, I got the necessary training courses done to become an English teacher, and I moved to Tokyo. Um, and that was it, it was initially just, I'd really enjoyed those two weeks, I wanted to spend a bit more time here, and I've never really looked back since. Um, barring a couple of years in Hong Kong for a different job I was doing, I've been in this part of the world ever since, and
0: I guess to to link it back to Celtic I mean that would have been that would have been around the time, certainly maybe a little bit before, but around the time that Nakamura joined celtic um uh and you you would probably have been there to see the first flourishes of obviously himself and Koki Mizuno, as far as I'm aware, the first two Japanese players that ever played for celtic mm. um what are your memories if any of of the impact of that on, on Japanese football culture and and the perception of Celtic in Japan around that time. Do you have any any sort of memories of that?
1: Well it's it's interesting you mentioned that actually because it directly um it's direct link there because Shinsuke Nakamura actually signed for Celtic about a week before I came here for that initial Kendall training camp in two thousand five. And I had my mm-hmm. Celtic top on, and I was at I was actually at Tokyo Tower, and I was taking a picture. You know that thing Celtic fans do when you go to an exotic place, you want to get a photo of you with the hoops on at this in this place. So I did mm-hmm. it at the top of Tokyo Tower, and there was a couple of random Japanese people who were like, "Oh, Celtic, Nakamura," and I was like, "Aye, that's right." And then we actually started a dialogue there, and um, bizarrely enough, one of those people is one of my fr- is a friend of mine to this day, and that was how we met. Was at Tokyo Tower when he picked up on my. Uh, Celtic Nakamura connection and that was it um and since then there's been a few different occasions there was like um I went on a trip to Kyoto uh for my birthday the day after we we beat Man United in the Champions League and Nakamura scored that free kick um mm-hmm. so that was actually on my on my 23rd birthday that that was that was some night that and uh went to um <laughs> went to Kyoto next day Celtic top on and some guy actually offered me 25000 yen which at the time was about 200 quid for my celtic top on the spot i was just like no sorry can't do it looking back on it now i should probably have done that because of how easy it is to get a hold of a new celtic top but i <laughs> um that was uh that was something uh i um and uh yeah the, the, you just get that it, there's a there's a recognition over here because you know the big the big global football brands you know barcelona real madrid liverpool man united um those teams bayern munich's another one everybody that knows football knows them but celtic are part of that now not necessarily on sporting merit but on account of the fact that we have this deep connection to japan now uh, first through nakamura and mizuno and now through the, the current um array of japanese players we've got at the club um and you know, there is, a, there is a bit of pride there because every time a Japanese player does something for Celtic, it's not just us that benefit. Japanese football benefits because people over here take a, a great deal of pride in seeing their countrymen go abroad and, and make it. And it really is, it's a, it's a great outlook they have. I mean, the reason why Celtic are able to take a gamble to this day in the Japanese market is because if a player is good enough to move to Europe... The J-League clubs go out their way to make it happen. They don't charge ridiculous amounts of money. Mm. I mean, you know, you think about when, like at, the t- at the very top level, when Kubo went to Real Madrid two or three years ago, the the fee was only 1.6 million. We actually paid more for Kyogo than Real Madrid paid for Kubo. That kind of tells you the, the, uh, the way things mm. are over here, is that when a good player wants to go to Europe, the clubs make it happen. Um, their financial benefit is an afterthought. It's more about getting the players to Europe and raising the profile of Japanese football. I mean, that's
0: that's just fascinating to think about. I mean, I, I can't think of a... I may be being ignorant because it didn't, it's not involved Celtic, but I can't think of another more sort of sudden influx of players from one nation to a club... In the way that the the Japanese players joined Celtic, you know, within the space of, say, six months to a year, you had Idiguchi, you had uh, Kobayashi, obviously Kyogo, Maeda and Hatate. I I mean, it must have been... I, I guess my question to you on that is, was it like, was there billboards of Celtic players everywhere, was Celtic all of a sudden in the zeitgeist in a way that it hadn't been before? I mean, what was the what was the impact of that over such a short period of time like that?
1: I mean, to be honest, from my point of view, that is something that I'm a wee bit disappointed in, is the fact that that could have been the case, but it wasn't, because the commercial side of Celtic have not capitalised on that at all. Um, the... Uh, the appetite is definitely here for for more celtic um like I said we have the name recognition now, but we don't have anything like the brand that a lot of the english clubs for example have over here um because to this day it's still very difficult to get merchandise um you can go to the the adidas shop in Jap- in uh, the Jap- the adidas japan the website and you can get celtic tops now but that's only a recent thing that's only like from the the end of last year, they started doing that. Um, Other merchandise still has to be ordered directly from the Celtic store, which usually takes two or three weeks to get here. And it's not exactly a very user-friendly interface, especially, I mean, God God knows how people that can't speak English are able to use it because the site, although there is a Japanese version, it's a mess. Um, And that's unfortunate because there Hmm. is a massive potential here and yeah, You know, Celtic are a recognised footballing brand here, but they are nothing like the level they could be. We could be on the same level with Bayern Munich, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Liverpool, Man United, if we had the same sort of marketing that they have. Um, I've often said, it's a wee bit of a tangent here, but, you know, the English Premier League is not the best league in the world, but it's the best marketed league in the world. And that is something that Celtic really Mm. need to get their act together on.
0: Yeah, I think I remember you saying that previously, and I'm glad to hear that um, Celtic strips are a a little bit better available than they were. Because I remember, obviously, during our time podcasting together throughout lockdown and things like that. Now there, there was all sorts of other more important things going on in the world, but I do remember you saying that kind of thing of, you know, you can't, you would expect to be able to get. Stuff for for Celtic merchandise and all that much easier than than we've been able to, um, and it's and 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 it is frustrating because, I guess, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, you've got a you've got a ready made fan base there. If if is is Japanese culture the type of culture where do they follow the sort of individual exploits of the players that come over to Europe? Would they so for example if 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 Kyogo moved on, do they would they tend to follow him, or would there be a lasting, you know, sort of affection for Celtic um, on the basis of the fact that he's played for us?
1: Generally speaking, um, not just in football but in other big sports here like baseball, uh, basketball, and so on, um, people tend to follow individual players that they like, um, but. What I would say is that Celtic have kind of circumvented that because we've got enough of a Japanese presence and a multitude of Japanese players that there's an inbuilt recognition with Celtic now. Um, and other European clubs have come to Japan recently for pre season tours and whatever, and they've worked on building that brand recognition in the absence of player recognition. And a good example was in 2019, I went to see Man City play Yokohama Marinos who were managed by Ange Postecoglou at the time. And um, Man City obviously don't have any Japanese players. I think at that time they might have had Koei Takura on their books, but he was nowhere near the first team. Um, so they don't have any big high profile Japanese players like Celtic do. But they got around that by making the, the, the event very accessible. Um, it was on TV. Um, the tickets were very reasonably priced. Um, they were i mean granted it was previously but they were less than half half what i paid for for the tickets like yokohama in the same stadium um you were able to buy all your man city merchandise outside the stadium beforehand now celtic had that as well to be fair um but they also had things like you could get your picture taken with the english premier league trophy um they did various outreach events where players went to local schools and met young kids, whatever. And there was a kind of an affection for Man City that grew out of that. And it was it was completely organic. Man City came here with nothing and they basically built a brand from scratch. And Celtic don't actually need to do that because we have recognition here already. But it is kind of it's kind of frustrating to see the the, the, the real effort that a team like Man City, who I previously didn't really have any great affection for, but I now have a lot of respect for for how they did that. Um compared to a team like Celtic, who I and probably millions of others in Japan are waiting to give them money, but they don't actually show me anything that says they want that money. So mm. it's a wee bit frustrating.
0: Mm. It's it's just, it is frustrating because you would think, you know, regardless of whether we have such a, a cohort of Japanese players in the future or not, you would have liked to have thought that over the past the course of the past two or three years... Having Ange Postokoglu, who was such a high profile manager in Japan before, having that influx of Japanese players, having the history of Japanese players, well, I say history in in, in inverted commas, with, with Nakamura and, and, and Mizuno, you, you just would have thought that there would be a, an opportunity there that you know the Celtic marketing department would be rubbing their hands together at, to tap into a market that, you know, only the, as you've previously alluded to, only the Truly, biggest teams in the world have have tapped into up until now.
1: Aye, I mean that that's the thing. Um, you know, you say Celtic's marketing department. I've yet to see evidence that they actually have one <laughs> um, because we we really we really are so behind the times on that. I mean, you know, I could go on a whole rant about how amateurish Celtic TV is, considering that it's it's uh, double the price of the other streaming service I pay for, which gets me every English Premier League, uh, most Serie A, and uh, quite a few uh, games from the the Saudi League as well. You know, it's it's embarrassing to think that I can watch every game in the English Premier League for half the money that I pay to watch three or four Celtic games a Mm -hmm. month. It's, mm, you know, it's not really, it's not really very, they've not done the research. They've not looked at, what other clubs are offering and what's already available here. Because if anybody in Japan who follows Celtic now does so purely because of a love or a love of the players involved, there is no outside incentive. Whereas there's a multitude of outside incentives as to why you should support Barcelona, Real Madrid. Um, they all have brand presence here, which Celtic don't, and which they really should
0: yeah I think I think that's that goes without saying and and you know if 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 it turns out that we haven't made the most of that opportunity it's it's kind of a once in a generation opportunity that we appear to have missed and it's going to be a shame but um but yeah um the next thing I wanted to talk to you about um, was obviously um, we've got the Asia Cup coming up. The squad has just been announced. tatati and Maeda are going to the Asia Cup with Japan. Um, Kyogo, much to the bafflement of a lot of Celtic supporters over here in Scotland, has not made the squad. I, mean, I know he hasn't had this season particularly the best season that he's ever had for Celtic. Um, my personal opinion on that is um, that the system hasn't fitted him quite as well, but, but we can maybe talk about that in a bit of time. But I wanted to get your thoughts on you know, the Japanese squad selection, you know, with a lot of people sitting over here scratching their heads as to why Kyogo hasn't made it and why Hatati's made it despite having had quite a significant injury this season and Maeda is such a stalwart for the national team over and above anybody, you know, what's your insight into that, knowing a little bit more about the the national team and the psyche of the national coach um, over there? Is that... Is it more obvious to you why that's happened than it would be to us?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would to make a sort of a Celtic comparison, I would say that if you remember back when um Gordon Strachan was the, the Celtic manager, a lot of people were very frustrated at the fact that Derek Rylden never got anywhere near the first team, mm. despite Strachan being on record as saying he's the best finisher at Celtic at the time. Um you know, there was the, 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 the only excuse sketch where there was like the the one-eyed alcoholic got on the pitch before Derek it right, and did and all this kind <laughs> of thing, you know. Um, But it was like, it was kind of a, it, you know, it, it's kind of like that with Kyogo because Moriasu, the Japanese manager, has his favourites. Mm. And he's kind of made the point where he thinks, look, Maeda has done it. He's done it at the World Cup. I mean, he's, he's scored in the last 16 against Croatia. He always mm-hmm. plays well. Um, Kyogo has been called up to a few different squads in different friendly internationals, qualifying games, whatever. And he's scored a goal here and there, but he has not made anything like the impression that Maeda has. Mm-hmm. Now, you you said before that you feel that the system this season isn't playing to Kyogo's strengths. And I I agree with that uh, in a Celtic context. Context, But I think in a Japan context, not only that, but also the fact it particularly plays to Maeda's strengths. Um, If, uh, as Celtic fans, we're shocked that Daiza Maeda's in that squad and Kyogo isn't, because the general consensus is that Kyogo is a better player. And if you're talking Mm -hmm. just about raw talent and ability, yes, Kyogo is a much better, much more naturally gifted footballer than Daiza Maeda is. But... Daizuma Maeda is more useful to the system that Japan play. His pace, Mm -hmm. his uh, engine is more useful for the system that Japan play. Japan does not really have the space for uh, forward players to be purely flair players. Kyogo is much more of a flair player. And Mm -hmm. Japan already get that from the likes of Mitoma and Kubo. They don't need another flair player in the team. So really, they're doing quite well without Kyogo, Um, Mm -hmm. whereas Celtic, we much more look to Kyogo as as our creative spark, whereas Japan already gets that from elsewhere. So basically what I would say is Kyogo's Kyogo's a fantastic footballer, you know, no question about that. But Japan have better options available elsewhere that suit their system. And Mm -hmm. Maeda is one of them. I mean, looking at Rio hatate the, the brutal reality is the only reason he's in the squad is because Mitoma is apparently injured. Mm-hmm. Um, because, again, we all know what a great player Rio Hatate is, but um, is he on the same level yet as the likes of Mitoma and Kubo? I'd say probably not. He could well be in a year or two, but he's not quite there yet. And, you know, people forget that the Japanese squad now is drawing on players from some of the very best teams in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really, there is a very high standard in that squad now, and Celtic, you know, two two or three years ago, even as recently as that, a player who was playing regularly for Celtic and playing in the Champions League, whatever, would be guaranteed to walk into the Japan team.
0: Mm-hmm. That is
1: not the case now, because they've got so many good players in England, Germany, France, Italy, um, players who are doing well in those leagues for some of the best clubs. So it's really a case of uh, those clubs are on a different level to Celtic. So, you know, if if we were saying, oh, why is such and such not getting a game for Scotland? But then someone who was playing regularly in the English Premier League was getting a game ahead of them, you'd say, oh, well, fair enough. Yeah. And yeah. that's the case with Japan now. You know, that that is the reality, is that you've got multitude of players who are playing at a higher level than Kyogo is. So... It's it's unfortunate, but the other thing is Moriasu's on record as saying that he doesn't particularly rate Scottish football. Um, mm-hmm. It's nothing personal against Celtic; he just doesn't think our league is at a very high standard. Yeah. And <laughs> judging by recent European performances, not just from Celtic but from other clubs, it's kind of hard to argue with that. So,
0: yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fair enough point. Um, and but he has still seen fit to to take Hitate and Maeda, so there, there's a bit of a contradiction in terms there. In specific regard to Maeda, um, listen, we could go back and forth on Maeda all day, I'm sure, because uh, as as yeah. anybody watching this will know, um, he's a bit of a hero of yours, and I have, let's just say, my reservations about him. I have to say, mm-hmm. I, I, and for anybody who hasn't heard me talk about this uh, recently, obviously, I... Um, uh, my thoughts on Maeda were poorly worded and probably not accurate in terms of... Because there's one thing you can't uh, doubt about the guy is he's worked great. Um, it's more of his forward play. But what I will say is his forward play for Japan is incredible. But I think that that might be to do with the fact that he's played more as an out-and-out striker. Do you think... I guess it's a double-sided coin. Do you think Celtic use him as effectively as he could be used? Do you think he would be a more effective option as an alternate striker to Kyogo, or is there is there room for him to play both roles? Do you think?
1: I mean, to me, my and again, I'm a, a, you know, I'm the other side of the coin. I'm a bit biased because I'm a big fan of, of Maeda. Mm. But um, what I would say is that I think his best strength is his versatility. Is mm-hmm. that he can play as a winger or as a striker, and he's good in both roles. But He's wasted out on the right right now. Yeah. Um, I, I really think it's it, it's not the right place to play him. You'd be as well just playing, now that he's fit, you'd be as well playing Leo Abada instead
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: because Leo Abada is going to do more on that wing than, than Maeda will. Um, unless you play Maeda either on the left wing or through the middle, you're not going to see the best of him. That's his two best positions. Um, and like you say, we can't fault his effort. He is trying really hard to make it work on the right wing, but it's just not, it's not his position. Um, you know, I think back to the, the Rangers game on December, the the Rangers game on, uh, <laughs> on December 30th. And uh, he did a great job through that game of being a nuisance. <laughs> he was not having a great game, but he was a con- his pace meant that that Yilmaz in particular was having a nightmare just trying to keep an eye on him. You could argue that Maeda's runs were what led to Tavernier being out of position for both Celtic's goals, yeah. um, because they had one eye on him, and you know that was something that I think a lot of people maybe didn't appreciate about Maeda was what he does off the ball. Um, you know what he does on the ball, like you say, rightly say, is occasionally questionable. <laughs> um, you know, I, I joked about the, on on Axon recently about him almost starting an international instant by firing a shot at the Green Brigade. You know, yeah. <laughs> but that was a that was another story. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's unfortunate um, because I really think he's a great player, but he's not being utilised properly for Celtic just now. And mm-hmm. I hope that I hope. Brendan Rogers watches the Asian Cup and sees what Maeda can do when he's used properly.
0: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm.
1: Because there's a lot of talk now about, oh, we need another striker because Kyogo can't carry it all season. And some people think, oh, maybe he isn't quite up to it. But there's a there's a proven goal-scoring, World Cup-level goal-scoring striker in Diasa Maeda. They are ready to use. We just need to use them. And yeah. I don't get the reluctance to do so. I really don't.
0: Yeah, I... I... I have to admit, some of the best performances I've seen him uh, have in a Celtic shirt are are when he has rarely played through the middle. And I watched the World Cup in Qatar, and it was like seeing a different player. Now, I don't know if there's other aspects of the system that Japan play that play to his strengths as well, but just from a very sort of um, base level um, view of it, it just looked like he was much more comfortable running onto through balls from a central position, sticking a leg out for a ball getting put across, relying much more on instinct than on than on anything else. I think the worst thing you can do for Maeda sometimes is give him time. I think that's hmm. that's where he that's where he you know he has an opportunity to maybe fluff it or whatever some of the some of the most frustrating moments for me is when he's been running through on goal on his own and has had too much time to think about what he's doing when he's at his best is when he relies on those killer instincts that he's got to 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 either finish or play a pass or something like that and i think maybe that's where his strength lies
1: yeah i would agree with you um when i first saw him play uh God, nearly five years ago now for uh, Matsumoto Yamaga, my local team. He, uh, that was his role, basically. Yamaga were the the worst team in the league that year, and they did end up getting relegated. But Maeda was far and away the best player in that team. And what he did was he just, he played as a lone striker, Almost, Mm -hmm. almost a target man in a sense. Every time that they played the ball out from the back, ended up at Maeda and he had to do something with it. And he would get the ball back to goal and he had split second to make a decision to go for goal. And it would be either cut inside or cut out wide, hit the byline or go directly for goal. And like you say, because he didn't have time to think about it, he had to react instantly. That was when he was at his best because he had to get the ball and do something with it immediately. Because frankly, he was the only guy in the team who could (laughs) at that Mm -hmm. time.
0: Here's here's a, here's a vital question that I'm sure everybody's wanting to know on a football podcast. Has Maeda always been bald, or did he play with hair initially? Because it looks like he's hashtag bald by choice. He looks I, like he's shaved his head. So I wonder what the what the hair do underneath the the shave is like.
1: As far as I know, he's always been bald. Um, that's you know, when I first saw him play, he was twenty one and he was mm-hmm. baldy then. I've seen pictures of him with his previous club when he was like 18, 19, he was bald then. Um, there was a, there was an interview, I think it was Celtic TV, did with Maeda and Hatate, and they were asking them questions about each other. And one of them was, what is each other's most prized possession? And Hatate said for and definitely his razor, because he shaves <laughs> his head every day, apparently. Um, so that was, uh, you know, I think that's just his thing. He is, he's, he's Celtic's baldy man.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. He's not. He's not. Um, it's not. We're not going to have the same um argument with him that we had about Larson when he lost his dreadlocks. Has he? Has he lost his power? You know, because I remember that being a, a ridiculous uh, discourse that happened after his dreadlocks were cut off and he went a couple of games without scoring or something like that, and everybody thought, oh my god, the source of his powers. Uh. But anyway, um just just to take it away from Celtic a little bit and focus on Japan just for a wee second I'm planning to try and watch as much as the Asia Cup as I can to try and see how Maeda does see Hatati come back from injury um see if I can be a smart aleck and spot any other um names that we might see um coming up in the future what's your thoughts on Japan's chances is that is are their chances of winning it as good as they normally are? Are they going through a bit of a barren spell? Put us in a little bit of context of where they're at at the moment.
1: Um, I think Japan should should probably look to be in the bet, in the, certainly in the last four of this tournament, and I would say probably winning it. That that mm-hmm. should be in terms of just the the sheer talent available to them. They are the best club in it, that the best country in Asia right now. Mm-hmm. No question. Uh South Korea are going through a bit of a a bit of a barren spell just now. Um they are, they're their only truly world class player is, is Sun Hyung Min. Um mm-hmm. and you know he's he's a great player, but he's not the sort of guy that can carry an entire team. Um so I don't see Korea winning it. Australia are a bit in transition at the moment. Um but they will regret Australia doing some damage in this tournament. Um, the fact that it's being played uh, in the Middle East will suit the likes of Qatar and Saudi Arabia, but I don't think they have the class um, to to ultimately win the thing. Although Saudi Saudi are a bit of an unknown quantity, they could be interesting. Um, we saw what they did to Argentina at the World Cup last year. Mm-hmm. Um, they are a they're, they're a team that can that can shock you if you don't prepare well for them. You know, they beat Japan in a qualifier uh, last year. And I think they beat Australia at one point as well. They're, you know, they're, they're a decent side in at the Asian level. But no, I, to me, Japan are the favourites for this tournament. Um, they should win it. If it goes purely on form, they will win it. But quite often, the Asian Cup can spring a surprise on you. I mean, Qatar won it last time. And nobody predicted that. And especially considering a year later how mince they were at the World Cup, you know.
0: Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say, if anybody wants a good laugh, uh, go back and retrospectively watch mine and Liam's um, oh, discussions and predictions about the World Cup. We did a series preview in the World Cup on Celtic Down Under. And, um, well, I mean, we listen... We did well to fill 15 minutes worth of chat for some of those teams. Um, so the, the outcomes of hmm. our supposed predictions are not really to be to be scoffed at, I wouldn't say. But I have to admit, I was sweating when we had done our Saudi Arabia preview and then they went out and sca- spanked uh, Argentina. Uh, yeah, I thought we were in for a bit of a roasting after that. But yeah, no, it is good fun uh, to, to try and... Um, try and predict these things when really you've got no idea, but I, I definitely will be keeping a close eye on it, um, with a Celtic hat on, but just in general, just any football to watch is great um, Before we close things out obviously it's just been, at the time of recording it's just been announced this week, I think it was that um, Harry Kiel, um Celtic coach brought in by Ange Postacoglu compatriot of him is going to become the third Australian manager in a row of Yokohama Marinos. Um, now Yokohama obviously have a place in the City group, which I think impacts their um, choice of manager and coach and and all that kind of thing. But they've obviously, um, I would presume, gone on the recommendations of previous manager Kevin Musket and, and potentially spoken to Ange about, about Harry Kuehl and his his potential as a manager. Um, what, what do you think his chances are of success there? And, and what kind of state did Kevin Musket leave Yokohama in that, harry's walking in
1: to take over i mean you know kevin muscat i think was uh was a very good manager at yokohama he basically continued what Ange started there and Mm. he you know in his first season with them he won the championship and the J league is actually quite a different um if you look at the last few years it's it's different teams that have won it kawasaki won it then yokohama won it this year Vissel Kobe won it. It's There's not many leagues in the world, top flight leagues, where every season there's about five or six teams that have a chance of winning it. And But the J mm-hmm. League is like that. Um, there is always a good half dozen teams that are going to compete. And those teams vary from year to year. So I don't, what I would say is if, if Harry Kiel doesn't win the league next year with Yokohama, don't. Don't say that you know he's a dud as a manager because as long as he's in like the top four, that's a good season for Yokohama. Yeah. Um, And I think it's a great continuity move. You know, they got... When when Ange left to go to Celtic, they brought in Kevin Muscat, who had served under Ange uh, before and so was able to largely continue the same thing. And they're now bringing in Harry Kuhl, who worked under Ange as well and will know the methodology there. And I'll continue it. I mean, to me, I you know, I took some flack for this back in the summer before Brendan Rogers came back to Celtic. I was saying Celtic should have gone for Kevin Muscat because mm-hmm. he was, for me, the continuity candidate. He mm-hmm. had carried on Ange's legacy so well at Yokohama. Um, and I thought he could do the same at Celtic, he would just deliver us more of the same. Um, and I'm sure he will go on to a very successful manager in Europe now um so my hope is that maybe you know three four five years down the line Harry Kuehl could end up coming back to Celtic as a manager having gained his experience from Yokohama and done a similar job to what Ange did um I think that again being part of the city group Celtic are not officially part of the city group but we do have a connection there Mm -hmm. so I think that there's definitely scope for, shall we say, future uh, future dealings there, and I think yeah. that's a good a good uh, a good way to look at it.
0: I think I think you hit the nail on the head there as far as continuity is concerned. Don't get me wrong; things seem to be starting to come together under Rodgers in terms of the players getting to know what he wants from them. But you could have been without that six months of up and down and and that kind of thing had you gone for a more con continuity like approach with Kevin Musket and yes, he's got a history with with the old Rangers and yes, there's some people that think that precludes him from from being an, a, a viable option as manager. But I, I'm tend to agree with with your view on it that, you know, it's more about what they can offer you than where they've been before. And I think everything I've heard certainly about about Musket um would suggest that he um would have been a viable option. And it probably suggests that there's a certain amount of continuity in the option that they've made in Harry Kuehl. He's just spent uh, however long it was, two years or, or up to two years under Ange Postacoglu, no doubt learning a lot from him about his philosophies and things like that. So they're maybe thinking he'll bring some of that into into management at Yokohama and who knows, maybe he'll be back in the in the hot seat at Celtic Park one day, but we, we never know. We never know. Um, Liam I, I want to say thank you to you for joining me today I hope everybody's um, enjoyed the chat it's it's ranged from we've tried to keep a Celtic slant on things but as I said at the beginning of this podcast it is, it is an option to what, broaden our horizons and talk a little bit more about football on the on the wider scale um, have you anything that you want to to plug or anything that you want to push anywhere other p- people can see you um talking all things all things Celtic and all things football
1: yeah um we do uh I'm, I'm part of the the team at Celtic down under and we have our our regular Monday evening show um mm-hmm. well that's Monday evening uh Australia Japan time Monday afternoon uh Celtic part-time uh I'm also on Axom's Tuesday bulletin that's uh half 12 on a Tuesday afternoon in Scotland um, also, if you're interested in something outside of football, uh, I am the news editor for Osaka.com, which is a mm-hmm. news and culture and travel website uh, about, well, about the city of Osaka. I lived there for for five years. I'm now living in Nagano, which is in the north of Japan. But I was in Osaka for a long time, know the place inside out, and I write daily, uh, sorry, weekly. Uh, news updates about what's going on in the city um, and uh, you can you can read my stuff every updated every every friday at uh, osaka.com new new article went up today and there'll be more articles going up next week and uh, yeah give, a, give us a wee follow we're trying to build a wee uh, uh shall i say a more kind of a a more down-to-earth brand of news about japan a lot of the news that comes out of japan is infantilized or it's lost in translation or it is just straight up incorrect. Um, I take a very direct approach to reporting the news here and I want to try and spread the the word of stuff that's going on in Japan. So hopefully if you're interested in J- Japan just outside of the football context, please uh, give Osaka.com a look.
0: Definitely would recommend. Um I've I've spoken to Liam at length, both on podcast and off about life in Japan and um if there's anybody except a Japanese person who can sell it to you, it's certainly Liam. So um definitely give that a follow. I'll definitely be going off to do that now. because um, my it's on my bucket list definitely to get out there at some point and if, if I do, I'm sure we'll um I'll I'll find myself in Nagano and we'll take in a, a J League game or something together at some point. So Um, Thanks very much, Liam, for joining me. Don't forget, everybody, to like and subscribe the video. Thoughts in the Hoops is growing every day, um, and it's thanks to the audience that's watching this that it's doing. So, Uh, Liam, thank you very much. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you again next week.
1: Cheers.